Welcome to The Bean Pot. I'm your host, Adam Drinkwater, a transplanted Pennsylvanian who made my home in the very deep American South. Thank you for joining me on this journey of self-reflection and personal growth, where I go further and dig deeper through the art of conversation with my Southern neighbors and friends. Please visit my website, adamdrinkwater.com, follow me on Instagram and Twitter at ADH2O, and give me your feedback and get special benefits at patreon.com. My guest today is Stephen Stetson, who is a senior campaign representative for the Sierra Club, covering Alabama, Mississippi, and Georgia. The Sierra Club is America's oldest and largest environmental organization. And Stephen's primary focus is on the Beyond Coal campaign, which focuses on retiring coal-fired power plants and bringing clean energy and green jobs to the southeast. And so in this conversation, we discuss his upbringing in Alabama and how that shaped his desire to pursue a degree in journalism, and later, a law degree. We talk about the things that led him to join the Sierra Club in 2017, And a good portion of our conversation is about where our electricity comes from, why that is changing, and how it might change even more in the future. We talk about water issues that cross state lines. We touch on transportation and what might be different for the next generation of drivers. I appreciate Stephen for taking the time to listen to my questions, and I hope you get something useful from our conversation. Here it is. My conversation with Steven Stetson. Steven, thanks so much for being here. Adam, I'm glad to be here. Always uh, glad to come to Troy. I've been following your um, Twitter feed for, I think it's been maybe about a year now. And what I like about what you've been doing is... You are very witty and fun on your Twitter feed. Uh, It keeps me interested and engaged. Um, I want to talk about that. I want to get into what you do professionally. But first, I really want to hear why you do what you do. How did you get where you are? Yeah, I'm glad you uh, enjoy the social media realm. I do too. Um, if folks want to follow, it's at Stetson Stephen, uh, Stephen with a PH, a uh, little plug. Um, so I, um, I work for the Sierra Club. I am a uh, campaign representative for the Sierra Club's largest campaign, the Beyond Coal campaign, and we focus on clean energy issues. Um, but your question of why I do that work, I think is um, the core of who I am, really. Um, I just believe we can make the world a better place. And I think that um, most people probably believe that. I think most people go through life and say, I give charity, I'm involved with my church, I help the kids in the neighborhood. And I think all of that is vital. You know, I I would not uh, downplay individual uh, charitable choices or anything, but I'm trying to plug into structural levels of changing the world um, because I think about future generations a lot. I personally don't have children, but I do think about the world that we are leaving behind for other people to inherit, and I feel a sense of obligation to improve the conditions that we're leaving behind to the next folks who are taking it off our hands eventually. Mm -hmm. So um, I think that motivating part of my career and my life and sort of my ethical worldview has evolved over the years. I'm happy to talk more about that sort of that journey, but um, it's it's a core guiding principle of uh, why I'm doing this work. Hmm. You grew up in southeast Alabama in Pike County. Yep. And went off to undergraduate in Texas. Is that right? Yeah, I got an undergraduate degree at the University of Texas in Austin. Hmm. When um, from there, you did you go to law school? Yeah, I came back home for law school. Um, so I went up to uh, the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa um, and got a law degree and thought I was going to go into the world of criminal law mm. um, and sort of to find myself in this position of doing this environmental work. Um, I didn't take a single environmental law class in law school. So uh, many of my colleagues have a lot more formal training in this in this world than I did, you know, sort of going through the path I did. But um, it has been a good home for me. I've, I've been doing this work for about three years now, but it, every job I've had has been some kind of um, advocacy or 
way of thinking about public policy or just, you know, focusing not necessarily on the size of the paycheck I can earn, but on what kind of contribution I can make. Where do you feel like that comes from, that motivation? I think it probably started at home from the very beginning. Both of my parents were public school teachers. Uh, my mom was my first ever principal. Uh, I went to a little rural public uh, elementary school. Um, we're in Troy, Alabama right now in Pike County. And about 10 miles away from Troy is a small town called Banks, Alabama. And that's where I was um, born. That's where I was brought up and raised. Uh, we moved to Troy when I was uh, young. Uh, but my mother was the principal in Banks. So um, I grew up as the sort of entitled uh, public school student whose mom was the boss of the school. And um, I knew immediately from both my parents being uh, public school folks that there was a wide world of opportunity out there and that some people were born not having very much and that I was really fortunate in comparison to a lot of the people that might have been getting their only meal of the day at school. So I think probably that's the foundation was just understanding that I sort of hit the jackpot in many ways where I was born, um, not through any earnings of my own, but just by virtue of how I was brought up. And, you know, I just sort of fell into a house where there was always food on the table and there was always uh, money for an extra pair of shoes or a little league game or, you know, whatever. Like I felt fortunate the whole time. And I think my parents kind of made me aware of that, that there was always people who had a lot less. So probably from the beginning, but I, I was certainly not, you know, devoting my life to charity or anything as a high school student, you know, I was pretty self-absorbed and, um, I was on the debate team in high school and that, that played a big part in my awakening to the world of public policy, I think. And the idea that, uh, there's arguments on both sides of things and that just the complexity of the world that's out there. It, there was a, so much outside the boundaries of Troy, outside the boundaries of Alabama. And I think over over the course of that sort of intellectual evolution, I, I just said, look, I, I've only get one shot at this. And instead of making a bunch of money to buy a house and buy a boat and, uh, you know, surround myself with luxury, I think that probably the right, the right play here is to think about... Um, making this world a better place. Hmm. You know, when I was uh, growing up in Banks, the train came through Banks as well. And um, I really do believe that the train passing through suggested that there's a wider world out there. And we used to count the train cars. Hmm. And I used to see the graffiti on the train cars. And I would wonder who is painting these train cars. What train yard? Who are these people? What is this strange, colorful language that I can't read? And I think even just seeing the train going through suggested to me that there's a uh, broader world out there. And I often think about Star Wars. I just saw the new Star Wars movie. But like when Luke Skywalker's looking off of Tatooine where he grows up, the desert planet, and he sees the twin sons of mm -hmm. Tatooine, just that resonated with me of the idea of a guy coming from a place thinking about the big world that's out there and the train passing through banks kind of held that totemic uh, idea for me people who grow up in rural communities they're kind of locked in right like they're separated from the cities by miles by forests by whatever it is that separates them and it's very easy to feel insulated from the things that are going on around you um and I think that even plays into the environment, right? And environmental issues and energy issues. Because as far as I can tell, Alabama hasn't changed too much in the past 16 years. It's still mega hot in the summer. We have like a week of winter in January and it's hot the rest of the year. It's pretty much the same all the time. Um, yeah, we have hurricanes that come through occasionally and the twisters that pop up from thunderstorms. Um, but other than, other than those things, I can't say that I really have a, a clear vision of what's going on in the rest of the world until I see it on social media. Yeah, I mean, the one thing about the weather is that it, it may change from day to day, but it's hard to understand those big, long-term uh, seismic shifts. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they talk about the difference between weather and climate. Mm -hmm. And I think that's real, that, um, you know, when you're talking about measuring across many seasons, 
Um, it, it's not something you can just um, rattle off as an intuitive experience of the day to day. But I, I do talk to people who are like farmers, and they may not use the language of climate change, but they might phrase it as something ain't right. Mm. And I do think that the seasons are changing. There are more extreme weather events than there used to be. So it's always been hot. I mean, it, it's never been lovely in August uh, to to be outside at noon in South Alabama. But it is we're having more extreme events and there's more extreme heat events um and there's a lot of diversity um so you know when you're talking about the difference between sea level rise or um what it means to have wildfires or tornadoes i mean it's a it's a super complex area and i'm not a i'm not a weather expert i'm um my area really is about energy and so we can talk a bunch about electricity mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. i think you're right i think as far as people feeling disconnected and cut off from the natural world around them especially as we spend more time looking at screens so um it's it's kind of ironic that you would say that you get a feel of it from looking at uh social media because there's a that mediated experience versus just um rolling down the window mm-hmm. yeah okay so back to your upbringing yeah. and your experience growing up in banks. Um, did that have, did that play into your choices to, with your career choices right out of law school? You know, I think I knew going into law school that I did not want to go to a law firm and help move around piles of money to help company number A sue company number B and, you know, get 20% or whatever, you know, whatever. I was not interested in the economics of big firm law. And I was not interested in the people who devote their lives to maintaining the status quo. I was interested in using my law degree to change the world. And I think that probably comes from the fact that I was doing journalism before I went to law school. Hmm. So um, I was interested in writing for newspapers. And I wish I could say that I got out of the newspaper business because I saw that the world of media was changing and that <laughs> you know newspapers were consolidating and that there, there were some very real concerns about the state of journalism in the world. But that's not really what happened. What, I, what really happened is that um, as I was writing for a newspaper, I figured it was probably easier to uncover the truth if I had the skills and the tools of legal research and, um, you know, the, the legal world offered opportunities to unveil the truth to the world. So that's my path from journalism to law school. And in law school, I was just like, this whole place is, you know, not speaking to me. Mm. I didn't really love law school. So I wanted to find a place after law school that allowed me to use those skills, to use that passion and dedication to, um, Fight the good fight, as they say. Mm-hmm. What was that? Um, what was that first good fight that you found? So I actually, surprisingly, I, m- I mentioned that I was thinking I was going to go into criminal uh, law. I studied the death penalty uh, in law school and thought that my career would probably be devoted to helping people get off of death row. I just, you know, had a moral belief from the beginning that it was not the place of the government to have the power of life and death. So I know people might disagree with that, but that was a, a, a moral belief that I had. And I thought I was going to go into like death row advocacy stuff, kind of like what the Equal Justice Initiative mm-hmm. is doing now. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are a lot of great um, you know, public defenders and other organizations. And I thought that was going to be my universe. And what actually ended up happening is I took a job at a small nonprofit here in Alabama in Montgomery called Alabama Arise that was doing anti-poverty advocacy work. Mm. And the connection for me was pretty clear that people coming from low-income backgrounds that were not you know, being given the services that um, are needed, that were in some ways just falling through the cracks, that that was a fundamental problem in Alabama that mm-hmm. you know the way that all of these pieces fit together public transportation consumer lending you know the entire set of challenges that low income people face uh, it just seemed like a natural fit even if i wasn't on the front lines in a courtroom doing criminal defense work there was a way to shape alabama's public policy environment mm-hmm. that um, aligned with kind of how i thought the world ought to be 
How'd you transition from that to the Sierra Club? So I stayed at that organization for almost 10 years. Mm -hmm. So I have a lot of experience doing um, the full range of public policy work in Alabama. Some of that was speaking at the legislature and lobbying and trying to write uh, legislation and push in committees to get that you know bill signed into law. And a lot of it was um, public policy organizing and talking in church basements to people who um, were the backbone as volunteers, you know, the activist uh, churches that are out there, the the people who just wanted to see a better world come into being. Um, part of my job was speaking to them and just, you know, basically translating complex bureaucratic legalese into language that everyday folks can understand. And so I did that for a while, and I got to know the Alabama uh, public policy environment, the different groups on the landscape, the nonprofit scene, and, you know, who are the major players in that world. And I think when Sierra Club decided they wanted to increase their investment in Alabama and across the three states that I cover, so it's probably worth noting that I cover Alabama, Georgia, and Mississippi in my job, that... I thought this was a way that I could make a really valuable contribution for something that I care deeply about. I do feel like we are um, damaging God's creation, that you know the, in the natural world that we um, are tasked with protecting is um, under siege constantly. And I thought that because of my connections in Alabama that I'd have a unique opportunity to do this work. And um, it really was only after taking the job that I began to learn about how electricity is made, what's the cost of burning coal and fossil fuels. And, you know, that was a big learning curve for me after taking the job. I had I knew a lot about public transportation and payday loans and um, the, the world of anti-poverty public policy. And I did not at the time know a ton about um, what happens when you flip on a light switch. What do you think is the most important campaign that you're involved with, with that affects Mississippi, Alabama and Georgia? So the reason why I'm assigned to those three states is that all three of those states uh, use a utility, by that I mean like an electric utility, a power company, that is owned by one company. So one company based in Atlanta owns three operating companies that provide electricity in those three states. And what Sierra Club has been thinking about is how can we pressure these utilities across the country to stop burning fossil fuels? And that's a really complicated question. It's not something that these utilities are inclined to do on their own necessarily. And it's very difficult to use the government to force powerful utilities to do something that they may not want to do. So to me, the most important campaign that I'm involved in is pressuring all three states, the utilities that operate in all three of those states, to stop burning fossil fuels. And you don't even have to believe in climate change to think that that's the right thing to do because it just makes sense from economic reasons. Um, sometimes the utilities are not doing things that make economic sense even for them because they are considering other factors besides uh, dollars and cents, hard as that may be to believe. Um, so to me, if I had a magic wand and could wave it, I would say that we would massively scale up our investment in solar energy. Solar and wind are cheaper and they do not emit carbon. Uh, into the atmosphere and methane and the other sort of problematic pollutants that um, our current way of doing things is causing. Just this week, you you had posted a couple of things on Twitter which caught my attention. Um, the first one that made it actually made me laugh, and then I went and read the article, and then I stopped laughing. Uh, but you said uh, n- not to make light of a horrific situation but I'm pretty sure Dumpster Fish Pollution Cover-Up is the name of a punk album. And I busted out laughing. I thought that was so funny. But then I went and read the article, and I was stunned that this could actually happen like in the modern era that we live in, that this is still happening. Like I imagine this from like 50 years ago or 60 years ago, but like, this is still taking place. Tell me what happened in that particular story. Yeah. So this, you know, I was making a joke about it and, and, you know, they say sometimes you, you laugh to keep from crying. Um, it's an awful situation where there was a, uh, rupture of, um, a release of some contaminated water and not just some, a lot of contaminated water from an Alabama power owned facility into a river, and it was just a catastrophic fish kill. Um, it was just the old school definition of pollution that resonates with, you know, 
you don't have to be uh, political or left wing or right wing to see a bunch of dead fish floating in a river and know that this is a horrific abomination. And so that's what happened. And the, and the, the story that you're referencing uh, suggests that when the people responsible for the spill showed up on site and they noticed that they had just killed hundreds of thousands of fish, that their floating carcasses were, you know, stinking up the Alabama shoreline, they took those fish and they threw them into a dumpster. They were seen uh, trying to clean up the scene before the state regulators got there. Mm. And so that's why I was making a joke about um, the dumpster fish cover-up or whatever. <laughs> but it, it is a horrific thing. And, you know, the the people that are responsible for these kind of incidents, um, they would prefer to get away with it. They would mm. prefer not to be uh, in trouble about it. It's bad public relations, and they can be fined by the government if they're caught doing stuff like this, even if it's an accident, you know, even if it, you know, they didn't do this on purpose. They didn't wake up that morning and say, let's go kill a bunch of fish. But, Mm -hmm. you know, there are rules and regulations and responsibilities that they have for making sure that contamination and pollution doesn't get into the water. And if you even by mistake, have a discharge like that, you do have to pay the penalty for it. And of course, you know, you can guess that my opinion is that the penalty ought to be large and act as a deterrent to uh, that kind of behavior. So that's just one example of something bad that's happened. Um, But you also referenced something good that's happening. Um, One of your posts was about about solar power, and you just mentioned that previously. why do you think that solar power is the way to move forward and clean energy in general? Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because, you know, I talked to my mom about uh, my work sometimes and she said, you guys seem like you're against everything. You're against burning coal. You're against burning gas. You're against nuclear power. What are you guys for? <laughs> and, you know, I, I, point well taken, mom. You know, um, we do need to have a positive vision of an energy future that people can get behind. You can't just be against everything. And Solar is one of those things that we are for because it makes sense. It does not pollute. But, you know, even if you don't care about pollution, even if you think that global warming is a hoax, and, and I know there's people out there who think that. Uh, I, don't, I think that's crazy to, to feel that way. But I'll tell you this. Even if you don't care about climate change or pollution at all, solar makes sense because it's cheaper. It's just, it's the wave of the future. And, you know, I'm not one of these people who loves to make predictions about the world, but every buddy in the industry says that solar and wind is the cheapest available electricity and one of the reasons why is the fuel is free you know if you think about burning coal you got to go and dig up these rocks from the ground you got to pay people to do that it's very dangerous work uh you got to transport it usually in a truck or a train you got to burn it you have to put pollution controls on the plant solar has none of those kind of problems solar you just put a panel out there in the cow pasture and you start making money Uh, We have tons of sunlight in the state of Alabama. You know, we're not quite Florida, the sunshine state. We're not quite Arizona, but we're really close. We have incredibly high solar penetrations in Alabama, and yet we remain one of the slowest states in the nation to adopt solar. And it's in part just because the utility's been dragging its feet on it. Is it... Is it just the utility companies that are dragging their feet, or are there other parties involved that have to make this happen? Well, what we've seen in Georgia, and I really feel like this is an advantage for me working in multiple states. You know, I don't mean to to drag down Alabama. I'm from Alabama. I love Alabama. I'm oftentimes proud of Alabama in some cool ways, but, you know, we're just behind the curve here, and our neighbors in Georgia have figured this out, and they brought multiple gigawatts of electricity from solar online in the last couple of years, not to use a engineering term, but, you know, a massive volume of solar, uh, you know, tens of thousands of megawatts of solar um, have come online and they get the same sun that we do. And what has happened as they have done that is that the private industry has grown up around it. Like there are a lot more solar companies over there. They have a lot more political clout over there and they have a more receptive regulatory environment over there. So the ball really is in the court of the utilities here first to make a commitment to doing it. And then these other entities like government and like the private sector will grow up around it and fill in the gaps. And there are people who want to put solar panels everywhere. There's people who want to put them on every city hall, every police station, every school. 
And you just think about the utility bills that could go down if those places are generating electricity based on the sun they get. Um, it's, it's a common sense idea, but I will say that, you know, the first thing that has to happen is we have to make a commitment to doing it. And that starts with the utility and the people who regulate the utility at the Public Service Commission. How do those people find motivation to move in that direction? Well, I, I, you know, when I, one of the ways I got into this work was I was on the debate team. I think one of your previous guests in an episode, um, Jamie Radford, the novelist and the lawyer over in Atlanta, he was also on the debate team um, here in Troy as well. So a deba- the de- let me put in a plug for debate real quick. But, <laughs> you know, something I was going to say is that one of the ways that I, we learned to debate is to think about what common ground people have. What, what, what do we agree on? Before we get to disagree, and let's think about what we agree on. And one thing I will say that utilities and the regulators and a lot of government officials of all political persuasions, we agree on we want to do what's best for the customer, for the, for the mom who's a single mom who's working two jobs, trying to get kids to daycare, get them to school, get them to soccer practice. You know, what at the end of the month are they paying on their power bill? So we can just, you know, let's think about what is in the com- common good, what's in the public interest. And a lot of those folks that are making the law now think that what they're doing is in the public interest. They're thinking about how to keep cost low, uh, how to be sure that the electricity that we get at our homes is safe, clean, affordable, and reliable. And I think that's a good place to start is we all want those things. We want the lights to come on every time you flip on a switch. But I would say that, you know, what's it going to take to get them to start thinking about these new ideas? I think they need to be exposed to the fact that solar and storage and batteries and wind energy are working in other states, that there's no massive drawbacks to um, increasing the penetration of these renewable sources onto the electric grid. And I think, you know, just some conversations to say this is not some kind of conspiracy. This is not some kind of plot to... um, you know, drive the coal industry out of business just because we don't like it. It's a way of saying there's a better way of doing things. And coal made a great contribution to this country over, you know, more than 100 years. The people who worked in those coal mines and they burned coal to spin a turbine to turn the lights on, they made an incredibly valuable contribution to the economic development of this country, and we should appreciate that. You know, I'm not here to demonize the people who did that work or continue to do that work, but I would say... If I was talking to, you know, if you were a legislator or a public service commission official here across the table from me, I would start the conversation there and say, let's talk about what's the best way to turn the lights on at an affordable cost. How many coal burning fire plants does the Southeast have or fossil fuel burning plants does the Southeast currently have? You know, we're among the nation's leaders in continuing to burn coal. I mean, that's not something we should be proud of. I love that we're great at college football. I don't love that we uh, are great at burning coal. Um, In Alabama, we've got three left. And you might think, you know, maybe you thought it was more than that. um, But they're they're three big ones. And they are of tremendous concern. They're uh, they're not only big, uh, they're old and they're dirty and... um, it's time for them to to ride off into the sunset. As Where they are those say. located at? So one's up near Birmingham, and it's a it's enormous. Uh, it's one of the biggest coal plants in the country. It's called Plant Miller. Uh, you got one near Wilsonville called Plant Gaston. And then you got one down near Mobile called Plant Berry. Um, and it's worth remembering if folks are listening and y'all don't know a lot about electricity that Alabama Power is the utility that covers the entire bottom two thirds of the state. And the Tennessee Valley Authority, good old TVA, coming out of the Great Depression, they've got the northern third of the state. So basically north of Birmingham on up in Huntsville, for example, is a TVA city. And TVA has some coal plants too, but none in Alabama. And coal is going the way of the dodo, man. It's, it is going the way of the VHS cassette. Um, so there are three left, and they're, they're not going to build any more. Um, coal is not the energy of the future. But they're hanging on to them, and it's time for them to go. Why did they decide not to renew those or build more replacement plants? Yeah, the economics don't make sense. Um, really, the way the Beyond Coal campaign got started when, when I took this job, um, it was well underway. Uh, the George W. Bush administration in the 2000s announced a plan to build a whole bunch of new coal plants, 
and activists across the country uh, said, you know what? We're worried about climate change. It doesn't make sense. The air pollution and the water pollution from burning coal. And they set out to block the construction of this new fleet of 200 new coal plants across the country. And they were incredibly successful. And that's really the origin story of the Beyond Coal campaign is they said, not only do we need to stop building new ones, we need to close the ones we've got. And since then, it's been a, uh, you know, a decade and a half long struggle to uh, finish the job, basically. And it has been incredibly successful. I read an article uh, that said the Beyond Coal campaign is one of the most successful environmental campaigns in modern history, in part because of the strategies and tactics used to take these coal plants and say, we need to do something besides this. Um, this has been fine. Well, not has been fine, but you know, thank you for your contribution. Here's a gold watch. You know, we need to close this plant and replace it with clean, renewable, cheaper energy that doesn't contaminate the air and water. And so, um, there's just some work left to do. Uh, Georgia has several coal plants. Mississippi has two left. And, um, I'm confident that they will go away eventually, even if just left alone. But what we have to do, based on the urgency of the current moment, is accelerate that timetable. So other than those coal plants, where are we currently getting our power from? So every state is a little different. And I think that's something that's really fun to talk about is the differences across uh, regions and kind of how the electric grid has been cobbled together over the years. It's really like a patchwork quilt of different kinds of technologies that are more appropriate in one place or another. So some places have lots of rivers that have been dammed up and they rely on hydropower. Other places invested heavily in nuclear plants. Um, that's good in some areas. And other places have done a lot of gas. Um, so uh, fracking has really brought the price of what they call natural gas uh, way down. We don't call it natural gas because we don't think that's a good way to generate electricity. And there's nothing natural about it. Um, so... In Alabama, it's a combination of those things. It's hydro, nuclear, gas, coal, a little bit of biomass, or you know, somebody might have a small geothermal plant out there somewhere. But um, when you're really talking about the main things that keep the lights on at the hospitals and at the airports and uh, you know, this room, the, the main sources, I mean, Alabama Power was at 50% coal um, as of recently as a couple of years. So um, it's still a major part of Alabama's energy economy. Just those three plants. Are, are they giving us that 50%? One came offline last year. There was a big one um, that retired. It was over 100 years old, up um, called Plant Gorgas. And so um, even Alabama Power, despite their public pronouncements to the contrary, they, they know that the days of coal are, are coming to an end, that they're going to be closing these plants down. And so, um, yeah, between those plants, um, the 50% of their generation portfolio uh, up to, I think, the, the recent data as of, as of last year or two um, was coming from coal, with the rest being supplemented. You know, there's a nuclear plant down in Dothan, and then there's some gas plants around that are um, filling that in. Hydro, it turns out, is a, a small percentage, um, but that's, that's the bulk of where we get it in Alabama. Why wouldn't we go more nuclear or more gas plants? They're going more gas. Uh, the proposal at the moment is to build a new gas plant down at the site of this coal plant in uh, Mobile. Alabama Power has proposed to, to add more gas to the portfolio because gas right now is really cheap. I mentioned that fracking has allowed... Um, energy companies to reach new kinds of pockets of gas in the ground. And so um, the shale revolution is allowing them to extract new gas. That's not going to last. Um, Sierra Club's opposed to burning gas. It leaks methane. It does contribute to climate change. Um, so we think solar is a better option. And one way or the other, they're going to be bringing a lot of new solar online. It's just incredibly affordable. Like I said, there's no fuel costs. You don't have to pay a bunch of people to stand out there. You get a guy with a lawnmower to push, you know, keep it, keep it all mowed. And, you know, you're making money just on the passive basis of the sun coming out. Um, it is true that some days the sun doesn't shine. We get a couple cloudy days in a row. You don't want the lights to go out. But the amazing thing happening right now is battery technology is improving a lot. So um, they call the the lack of sun those days, they call that the intermittency problem because some days you get it, some days you don't. Um, 
batteries solve that. So if on a very sunny day you're saving the electricity, you can dispense it on a cloudy day. And the battery stuff, you know, it makes our phones look like nothing. Um, you know, the batteries in our phones and laptops are are paltry compared to what the industrial scale electricity storage batteries can do. And they're even developing new new kinds of energy storage. So um, that is what's going to win the day ultimately. I saw a picture, at least I recall seeing a picture of some battery fields like in Arizona or something like that. Um, is that the type of storage that we could expect in Alabama or would it be some newer technology? You know, there's all kinds of storage. It's a really exciting area. Um, even there's even some natural little pockets where they can pump air down into the ground and let it out when they need it. And it's almost like a balloon. Um, I mean, there's a lot of ways you can store, um, energy. Um, I've saw an article recently uh, that was comparing, uh, electricity storage to a ski lift where, on a day where you have a lot of energy, you pull all this energy up a hill, and on a day where you don't have much energy, you can just let gravity pull it back down, and the gravity does the work and generates the electricity. So it's just a matter of using computers as they have to forecast when you're going to need it and when you have extra. And if you map that out across you know, how many people you got and how often are they turning on the air conditioning, um, it is functional. A lot of countries are doing that. So yeah, I think your your question is right. That is what we're going to see here, um, especially if we can, you know, the old model of centralized electricity generation at a factory or a power plant, that is ultimately going to go by the wayside. Who has been receptive to these changes from a public policy standpoint? Well, I don't want to, I won't dig into the politics too much, but I will say one thing that's really interesting about the South is over in Georgia, for example, there is a whole set of clean energy Republicans. You know, mm. the, the usual framework is liberals like solar and Republicans like coal, and that's not actually true. Um, interesting. So there is a world of um, people of all political stripes who say that clean energy and renewables and solar and wind. It doesn't, like I say, they don't, they may not care about climate change at all, but they say this is the economic direction we're going. Hmm. And if you get a large enough group of people who think that, then you have the investment sector come along and they are placing bets on which kinds of energy you're going to win out. And that's one of the reasons why nuclear is not winning out is because the economics don't make sense. Um, it's just really expensive to do nuclear right now. And that there's only one nuclear power plant under construction in the entire United States. So, um, I would say that the people who are thinking um, hard about this in an advanced kind of future-looking way are the people who are um, finance people, who are making big bets um, in favor of the next generation of energy storage, solar and wind. And then you have the people that are just committed uh, to this question of climate change as well. You know, there's a bunch of activists out there who think that uh, because the sea levels are rising and the polar bears are dying and, you know, the consequences of climate change like they care a lot about it too they want to decrease the amount of carbon that we're putting into the atmosphere and i think on the other side you have people who say you know these are jobs you know that these are jobs that um you you have people working in power plants you have people that are digging coal out of the ground in the mines and we don't want those people to just become unemployed because their their sector has become sort of technologically obsolete. So there's an entire universe of people who are thinking really hard about how to transition the economy um, from this old model to the new model. And that it's not an easy question. There are there are arguments to be made or have been made uh, that our current power grid is antiquated and not uh, protected from, say, terrorist attacks um, or major climate events, destructive events. Does shifting toward solar and wind do anything to upgrade or, um, I guess, uh, protect that power grid yeah the power grid is kind of rickety it's kind of i i grew up around here as, as you know and and i i read some stories about when we first got electricity they they talked about uh like in the 1920s and the 1930s some areas uh got their first wire 
um, and they called it bringing the current. Hmm. And I just love that imagery of the you know rural farmhouse getting a wire strung up on some poles, and suddenly they can you know bake bread a lot easier, or they can you know um, read into the night. So that that grid that we have has been assembled by patchwork over the years, you know. And and you're right, there are some real vulnerabilities. And to answer your question, yes, decentralizing by putting a bunch of solar panels everywhere instead of having all the electricity coming from a single factory is a safer way of doing things. And one of the first people to realize that was the military, you know. Um, Instead of cutting a single wire that would uh, take all of the military bases offline, uh, just to talk about your you know, security example, uh, the military bases immediately realized that they were a lot safer if they could generate their own electricity. So the military bases across the country said, we need to be energy independent and have our own panels, our own batteries, and if something bad happens to the grid, all the lights don't go off at the military base. And so they were among the first early adopters of the idea that a decentralized grid where the generation technology is distributed across the network um, is a better way of doing things. So yeah, um, you know, in a world where hackers in other countries might want to turn off the lights at the airport or at a hospital or at the military base, it is a lot safer to just have the distribution technology uh, across the grid. And then we, of course, you know, we need to keep upgrading the wires. And, you know, if storms are going to be coming, we don't want the, the power lines to be knocked down. So um, a lot of there's a whole universe of questions under the transmission of electricity. Um, but, yeah, to your, to your question, the generation piece um, can also be decentralized. Is it possible for me as an individual or is it even feasible for me as an individual to provide my own power for myself? You know, I'm so glad you asked that question because that's a conversation that is happening at the state level right now. Right now, the state of Alabama will charge you an extra tax um, if you wanted to put panels on your house. Um, so if you said, you know, this, this whole grid thing sounds a little rickety, I'm going to take matters into my own hands and put some solar panels on my roof. The way the law is written now, Alabama Power is allowed to charge you a big fee to do that so that if you're going to patch into the grid and you're going to get electricity to power your TV and your uh, refrigerator and some of it is coming from your own solar panels, but some of it is coming from the grid, they are disincentivizing you to generate your own. You know, they'd rather sell it to you than you make your own. And so it's the opposite approach that a lot of other states are taking. A lot of other states are actually saying, you generate your own, and if you make any extra, you can sell it back to the grid. Um, and that way, you know, everybody can benefit if you have extra. And unfortunately, Alabama is taking the opposite approach, and that's being litigated right now. Hmm. Um, not by us, but um, some groups have gone to the Public Service Commission and asked for a removal of what they're calling the solar tariff and so, yeah, it would be cool if we all could make our own. Now, that doesn't work for everybody. Some people live in apartment complexes. Some people live in shady, you know, my house, for example. I have a 200-year-old oak tree over my house, uh, so a panel on my roof wouldn't do too much. And I live in a historic home, so the Neighborhood Association probably would not be thrilled if I put a panel up. Um, but yeah, I think that decentralized approach is working for a lot of people in a lot of states, and it's taking pressure off the grid because everybody can then sort of mm -hmm. chip in. I don't like anybody telling me what to do. In fact, usually when people tell me what to do, I'll do the opposite. You are Southern. Yeah. Is that, is that <laughs> a, a mark of Southerness? Um, just to hear that somebody, that I couldn't go off the grid, that I couldn't provide my own power without being charged a fee, like that makes me angry. That makes me want to go out and put panels all over my yard and my house and my car and everything. Well, listen, if you want to pay to do it, you can do it. Um, it's something that some people are doing. Um, it's just disincentivized. The way we structure the law, you know, I think about the law as what kind of world do we want to live in, and you can either incentivize certain behavior or disincentivize certain behavior. And the way it's written now, they're disincentivizing it by making you pay extra. There's nothing illegal. If you and, if you and I want to go build a house in the middle of a cow pasture, mm -hmm. and we don't want to run power lines out there to it, and we just say we're going to generate all our own electricity and we put panels out there and we put batteries out there, we can do it. It's not illegal to do that, but that's not the world most people live in. Most mm -hmm. people live in a house that does have power lines running to it. And if you, you know, 
have a cloudy day and you do want some electricity from the grid late at night or it's August and you want to turn on the air conditioning, uh, sometimes you need more electricity than you can personally generate. So we need to find the balance in there where people can make some of their own, you know, and generate what you want. You know, if you're able to, that would be wonderful. And then, you know, if you need some extra from the grid, you know, pay for it. I think, you know, having electricity is a wonderful luxury. It's almost a miracle if you think about it. Um, but we should pay for what we use, but we shouldn't be disincentivized for making our own. Yeah. I mean, I guess I kind of think of it like if I go to the grocery store to get a gallon of milk and I want some soy milk or some almond milk to go with it, like I'm going to pay the same tax on any one of those bottles. But if I choose to use almond milk instead of regular milk, cow milk, I'm not going to be charged an additional fee for that. Like yeah. that just seems ridiculous to me. And I'll, I'll take your example uh, and apply it to the world of electricity in which there is no choice. It's worth remembering, and everybody listening to this should keep in mind, that we live in a world where the electricity providers have a monopoly. This is not like the grocery store where you can choose salad dressing A and salad dressing B. We live in a world where one company provides the only access to a service that we cannot live without. We don't live in a world where electricity is a luxury good that we could just say, eh, I'm not going to do electricity this month. And in a world where there's a monopoly provider of an essential service, um, it's very important how we regulate that provider because consumer choice is not a way to correct the available market offerings. Is that why we don't have multiple power companies? Yeah, it's a monopoly. Now, other states have a different approach. Other states have competitive markets where company A will bid, you know, we'll sell you electricity for five cents. And company B will say, how about we sell it to you for four cents? Um, you know, we don't live in that world. We live in a world, in all those states I mentioned, Alabama, Georgia, and Mississippi, uh, it's what's called investor-owned utilities. So that means that these are companies that are traded on the stock market. You know, you can buy stock in the Southern Company if you want to. And they have a monopoly over all of the provision of electricity across those states. So it's a monopoly-owned, vertically integrated utility. And um, different kind of world than buying soap. Mm -hmm. Well, we've spent a lot of time talking about energy and electricity. I hope it's not too boring. I, you know, I could talk about it for days. No, but, it, yeah. it's, it's interesting to me. I, I mean, I've, I've thought about it before. Um, and I think most people think about it when they open up their utility bill, right? And when it goes up and they're like, well, why does this go up? Why is this, my bill is so expensive this year and I don't know why. Um, it's important to know like where you're getting your power from because we live in a world where we just have always had electricity. We've always paid it to whoever our service provider is and we're just used to doing it. Um, we don't think about the alternatives. Uh, we don't think about um, how other states are doing it. So I think it's, at least for me, it's good for me to think about where we are and what are other possibilities. Um, what other major things have you seen across these three states um, that have impacted you? Well, I'll tell you the way that I've been thinking about um, the need to change the overall structure of things, it's not just in the world of how we flip on a light switch. That's really important. Like you said, we can't live without it. If my refrigerator turns off right now, uh, you know, it's a crisis. It's a, it changes my whole day around. Um, so electricity is really important. Um, the other big chunk of, of how we need to be thinking about energy is in transportation. Hmm. And the availability of electric cars is going to radically increase over the course of our lifetime, when your children are buying a car, they're going to be making some decisions about, do I want a car that burns gas? And if I don't, how far can I drive on a battery? And where do I plug it in? And how long does it take to charge? And if I'm driving from here to Chicago, how many places do I have to stop along the way to plug in? And how long do I have to wait while it plugs in? So these kinds of things are really important. I've been thinking a lot about it. Um, and the other piece of that, the way these two pieces fit together as well is if more people are plugging in more stuff, we're going to have more demand for electricity. Hmm. And so if people are using more electricity over the future years, how are we providing that electricity? 
we like electric cars because they don't emit tailpipe exhaust. You know, they're cleaner. They're actually faster, which is cool. Like if you if you're a car person, and I kind of like cars, uh, the acceleration rate of electric cars, of electric motorcycles, is incredible. They are just remarkable pieces of technology, and they're getting better and cooler and faster all the time. They have electric Porsches, and really, you know, it's really awesome stuff. But the question that we need to think about is how, as the transportation sector is changing. Um, including both electric and autonomous vehicles, what does that do um, to the demand on the grid? And we don't want people plugging their cars into a coal-fired power plant. So demand for electricity going up, um, that's fine as long as we're providing that electricity from clean sources. Um, but yeah, I think I think a bunch about transportation. Um, and I'm also thinking this is not going to be popular with some folks because it's not popular in my house, but... Um, we need to get gas out of buildings too. Um, and that includes the, the gas stove that I, that I cook on, that my wife cooks on, um, ultimately over the next generation. And this may not happen in our lifetimes, but if we're really talking about big picture thinking about the world, um, because that gas is, is the same kind of gas they burn in power plants. It's gas that's fracked out of the ground and it, it emits methane and it it contributes to climate change. And so my stove may not do a lot to that, um, although I was reading some stuff about indoor air pollution that comes from uh, our indoor ranges. But I'll tell you, uh, you know, I, I like cooking on gas. It's just a personal preference. Um, but the large buildings, like industrial buildings, especially in big cities that are using gas for heating and gas hot water heaters and stuff like that, um, ultimately that needs to be converted to electricity as well. And um, that's going to be a heck of a project. We're still in the very early stages of even thinking about this problem, but some cities across the country have started passing laws that says if you're going to build new construction, anything, residential or commercial buildings, you can't put gas in there. Does electricity provide the kind of, I guess, robust heating that needs to be done? Is it as efficient using electricity as gas? Yeah, it's actually better um, if it's done right. Mm. Um, you know, you can have these little electric space heaters and stuff, and there's, you know, ways of doing it wrong. But if properly done, you know, and I'm not an electric engineer, I, you know, like I said, I mostly work on the power plant side of things. But my understanding from the work I do with uh, my colleagues who do this work is that electric is actually more efficient if properly done. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, water. Yeah. We talked about this the other day. Um, <clears throat> I don't know a lot about this topic. Uh, our water comes from, at least from this city, comes from aquifers um, that are deep, deep in the ground. But there are lots of places in the Southeast um, that share the same water, which surprised me. And I didn't, I wasn't aware of this until a couple a couple of years ago. I read an article about some issues that were happening in Georgia that were in that were impacting Alabama. Um, I'd never thought about this before. What can you tell me about that? You know, it's funny when we when we drew these state lines and said this part is Alabama and that part's Georgia, we weren't thinking about the underground water when we did, when we drew those lines. So we kind of drew the maps on the surface. Um, but it turns out that like the ecosystems and like the forests, you know, it doesn't just cut off at the state line and the water under the ground is no exception. So, um, we do share, uh, water with other folks. And just cause, you know, my driver's license might say Alabama and somebody else says Georgia, we're pulling water out of the same hole. Um, and so there's a three state water war happening and it's a very complicated legal subject and I'm not the expert on this, but, um, you know, what starts upstream flows downstream. And so if I need a certain freshwater mix for my Apalachicola oysters down in Florida, but if everybody in Atlanta is sucking the water out to wash their cars, um, there's a massive impact on the fantastic oysters that I love to eat because the city of Atlanta continues to grow and doesn't regulate how much water people can pull out. So it's a complicated issue. Uh, I'm on the board of an organization here in Alabama called the Alabama Rivers Alliance. And the Rivers Alliance thinks a lot about this issue and not, so it's not just a pollution issue. And I think that's a really good thing for people to think about. It's not just about the quality of water. It's also the quantity of water. Like how much can you suck out at any given point? And under the law, traditionally, if I'm upstream from you, I can suck out all of it. You know, just under traditional common law, it's like too bad for you that you live downstream from me. 
I like to use all the water to water my crops. And um, if that doesn't leave any for you and this, the creek bed is just a dry little trickle, well, tough luck. You should have bought the piece upstream instead of downstream. Um, you know, the law is a little more complicated now. And But one of the things that has been pushed for at the state level in Alabama is we don't have a plan. There is no statewide plan for how much water people ought to be able to pull in or out of the streams and in the creeks and the rivers and the lakes. Uh, other states have plans. And the reason why a plan is important is you can't control when it rains. And so sometimes, like we had this past year, you get a long, long period where it doesn't rain and you go into drought conditions. Suddenly people start freaking out that you actually need water to not just to water the crops, but to like, you know, live to fundamentally provide the services to the communities that we live in. And so um, it's a very complex area of law, but the basic ask at the moment is just to say Alabama needs to have a plan about what to do and who gets to withdraw how much. You know, maybe we should prioritize that it's less important that we have a water park than it is that people have clean drinking water. And I'm sorry if you don't get to run your jet ski out at the lake, but at the same time, we have a hospital to keep open. So, you know, the rules don't have to prioritize. The rules don't have to say, you know, here's how we ration water necessarily. But we do need to have an idea of what happens if it doesn't rain. Because like you said, Georgia and Florida, they also would like some water. Okay, so moving forward, where do I go to learn about these things? Well, the Sierra Club is America's oldest environmental organization. We've been around for like 128 years. We started off as a hiking club in California, um, but now we have like 4 million members and supporters across the nation. Uh, it's not as big in Alabama as it is in some states, but it's pretty big. There are Sierra Club groups around the state that um, do all kinds of cool stuff. And if you just like hiking, one of the big things you can do to really sort of get your mind right about uh, protecting the environment is to get out in it. It's to put down the phone, you know, get off the couch, turn off Netflix, and go walk around for a minute. You know, just beautiful pine trees out there, paths, trails, uh you don't have to go camping, just stroll around a little bit. So the Sierra Club is available. It's a membership organization, and um, that's a fun way just to meet some cool people as well. So I'll put in a plug there, but you don't have to do that. I mean, I, I would say that keeping up with this stuff, if you haven't turned off the podcast by now and you know you haven't found this boring and you think electricity is interesting, we have a challenge on our hands of how to change around the way we make electricity. And so that is both a political question in terms of what kinds of elected officials uh, support uh, embracing the future and which ones are clinging to the past. But it is also an economic question. So maybe uh, it's just a matter of, like you said, putting up a panel, putting up a solar panel and just seeing what happens. You know, getting involved in the next generation of technology is really um, a valuable enterprise in and of itself. It's a way to kind of stimulate our thinking about what's coming next. And um, those might be way, initial thoughts. Um, I mean, I, I would say that we live in a world that is filled with distractions. I mean, I am not sure how I make it to the end of the day. You have children. I'm sure that there's just a, an incredible priority list of things that's just like, you know, getting to dinner time, you know, getting them to piano lessons or whatever. Um, I understand the competing desires and people don't have time to drop everything and become a political activist. I get that a hundred percent. So the question really that people have to answer is what space in your life do you have for thinking about the direction the world is taking? And, you know, everybody's going to have a different answer to that. Not everybody can go to a meeting at night. Not everybody can take the weekend off to go to a conference. But one of the things I, I love about you in this podcast is you're constantly asking questions and thinking about how to um, make things better, how to bet, not better yourself, to expose yourself to new ideas. Uh, and I think people need some of that spirit just to say, like, you know, what's coming next? How can I help? And everybody has a different contribution to make. Well, Stephen, this has been enlightening for me. I've learned some things today. Uh, you've challenged me to to think differently uh, about my electricity, where I get it from, my water, my air, uh, really things that impact me every day in large, 
in large ways and important ways that I really don't give much thought to. So thank you for coming and challenging me and, and hopefully, uh, hopefully we can meet again and, and, and keep the discussion going. Yeah, it's an ongoing battle. So um, I'm excited to have the opportunity to share these ideas with you and appreciate your your probing interest. Um, you are doing a great service by making this podcast. So I'm excited to be here with you. Thanks for saying that. And thanks for being here. Well, friends, there it is, another episode of The Bean Pot. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Steven Stetson. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you are subscribed, I would really appreciate if you rated the show with five amazing stars. This show was produced, recorded, and edited by me. All music is by the very talented and gracious Lenny Trawick. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the journey. Thank you.